Hello. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's going on? Okay, so here we are with episode two of Marlins and Chow. We've made some changes uh, to our format to soon to be our logo um, and are ready to go. So the first topic that we had uh, on the menu today uh, was, well, we have the World Cup that just ended in Moscow. I wanted to talk a little bit about American football versus world football. What do we think the future will be in the United States? And how does CTE make any change to that? What are your thoughts on that, Chabe? Okay, so we've had a couple of really good conversations about this. And I think uh, I actually wrote an article for the uh, Moab Times Independent about uh, CTE in football and also my thoughts on CTE and the UFC, which people have not really been talking about. So I think it's going to be a tough sell. First of all, it's getting harder and harder to watch the NFL every year. And knowing what we now know about traumatic brain injuries and even just minor debilitating brain injuries, I think it would be really hard in the future to to convince kids to want to play football or even want to allow them to do so. The problem with that, though, is that Americans are not interested in soccer at all. I was watching uh, American football yesterday, soccer, that is, and it was just super boring, man. All the best players are all in UEFA or they're in foreign countries' leagues. But we just It's going to be generations before we have decent soccer players in this country at least on the men's side. For our women's team, our national women's team has been doing very good. They're one of the best in the world. So what do you think about that? So to give a little bit um, of background to it, uh, we do have the youth participation in football in the United States. The tackling flag did go up slightly in 2015. However, while there is an estimated 3 million or so children ages 6 to 18 playing football, Numbers are still off their peak from 2009, down as much as 14%. The game's growth is not being driven for the most part from boys playing tackle football, but from flag football and increasing girls' participation. Without girls, football participation in flag and tackle at the high school level would have dropped instead of grown in 2015. One of the things that the NFL is concerned about is this lack of a pipeline means that over time, NFL ratings may slip. And I know, you know, both of us played football as kids. And I know a lot of times after we had a game or after we had a practice, we would go to somebody's house and eat pizza and and watch NFL games. I don't know if it was similar for you guys. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that it certainly is a pipeline that uh, once you get to the varsity high school level and sometimes even – uh, even before that, at freshman and uh, JV levels, you'll have scouts for colleges. They're watching football players grow up. And uh, it's different from basketball in that respect because you can't really go straight from high school to the NFL. You still have to do a little more development, which I think is kind of, uh, I think it kind of speaks to the physicality of the sport because you have to have a few more years to develop before you even getting looks and that's if you're really good i think what may happen is that football will still exist 
just in the same way that in certain parts of the world, other um, traditions are still there, but it becomes increasingly regional, right? I don't see mm-hmm. Texas ever completely giving up football or uh, a lot of the Southeast, but I can see places like California, um, parts of the upper Midwest, um, and definitely the Northeast moving to other sports. And I would even argue that they have. The Northeast, I know a lot of people I've met who've gone to schools there have gotten really into lacrosse. Um, out here in the West, um, you have any, uh, a growing uh, South Asian population and uh, East Asian population. So, you know, cricket is becoming a bigger thing, in- very incrementally. Um, soccer is definitely a thing here on the West mm-hmm. Coast. Uh, basketball is definitely a thing. Um, and so I think that most likely what you will see is more of parity in the sports as opposed to what was once a complete dominance by the NFL. Um, the other thing that I think is, is worth mentioning um, is that there actually was recently a study, this study came out last year, that links soccer playing to CTE as well. So it, I think there also might be something going on here where part of the reason why we're making such a hubbub about football is simply because it's the biggest kid on the block. And when it comes to CTE in this country, most people can link it back to football because it's the most commonly uh, played sport with uh, head collisions. But if we were to increase soccer in this country or any other sport that had head collisions, um, I think that it might be a different story. Um, what yeah. do you think on that? Yeah, I think um, there's really, in those contact sports, uh, my coach back in the day used to say football is not a contact sport, it's a collision sport. Basketball is a contact sport. And he's right about that. Basketball and soccer are contact sports. And if you watch the World Cup, you'll notice a lot of people are button heads and getting kicked in the head. So, I mean, you can't really uh, account for concussions being prevented wholesale. But, I mean, in football, there's just so much damage being done to your head just getting rattled around in there. I remember uh, back in the early 2000s, they were saying those new Adams helmets the, new, the ones that pretty much every player in the NFL has now were concussion-proof. That's how they were being marketed to teams. And as it turns out, that's not true. So, I mean, unless you can find a concussion-proof helmet, I don't think that they're going to be able to fix that problem. But I think uh, a lot of people are going to gravitate towards more contact sports than this full-on collision sport. I think rugby is actually safer than football. I think if uh, American kids started to take interest in rugby and, and more places that are heavily uh, biased towards football, I think they'd, they'd take a liking to it. Yeah, um, I definitely – and I've, I've heard that argument in the past that because of the helmets in football is kind of what makes the situation even worse because people have like a, a fake – a false sense of security. They think that the helmets are protecting their heads. Um, and so they hit people as hard as they possibly can um, when really your brain inside your head is still moving around as your body stops. Exactly. Stops. Um, and so that could be a great point. You know, another thing I kind of wanted to ask you about, um, because it'll be, you know, 
tied to another segment I'm sure we'll talk about later is what implications does this have about men's ability to complete, uh, compete intellectually with women? Because um, you think about it, it's still most of these players, the people who play the longest and play the most frequently, not all the time, of course, but statistically speaking, are men. And we're coming to an age where, and, and it's a great time really that we have educational parity between men and women and career parity between men and women. Um, but there still is, I feel like, a certain expectation of men to be macho and to be strong. I mean, most women will say, you know, they still want a guy that is in good shape and has um, is kind of tough. Um, even women who are um, some of the most ultra new agey um, kind of types of personalities. Um, do you think that this has any effect or sheds any light on past or future gender relations? Uh, that's such a tough question. I don't know, but I do. Uh, I have seen studies that show um, as of late that uh, most women do, even the uh, ones who self-identify as feminists tend to uh, skew towards the more stereotypical macho male. But I think... Uh, I think we do overcompensate. I think uh, some of the stuff, some of these elements of traditional masculinity, we can kind of do away with. I think we should be a little more concerned with our mental and physical health. And this is something you're seeing coming into the conversation, especially in the, the realm of pro athletes, right? You're seeing uh, NBA players openly talking about panic attacks and the importance of therapy and things like that. So I think, uh, I think we're making progress here. But I, as far as future relations, I have no idea. I don't know if we can quantify that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that might be something that we leave for a future po uh, podcast. It's actually uh, a perfect time to move on to our, our next topic, which is the topic that everybody's talk talking about right now um, following the World Cup in Russia is the Trump and Putin um, summit in Helsinki. And it looks like, you know, obviously, knock on wood, <laughs> this might be the first time that Trump is not going to easily recover from um, a scandal or from losing face. Yeah. And uh, how much of this, this is what is so confusing about the Trump administration, because unfortunately, <laughs> nothing he says really matters. It, except the horrible things he says. We, it's important to pay attention to it and not normalize it. But his actions and words often don't line up. So, I mean, for example, we have been heavily uh, bombing Russian-backed uh, militants in Syria, something that is known by both parties, and yet we haven't really addressed it in the mainstream media. So Trump his administration has kind of taken a hard line against Russian aggression because, I mean, it looks like they really will take any opportunity to move in on the Baltic states if they can. And it seems like the generals, Mattis, and, and uh, the rest of Trump's cabinet that's still there, they seem to be adamant on holding them back. But as far as Trump himself, he just seems like exactly what we thought he was going to be, a completely incompetent person. 
and the vibe I get is I, I know his secretary of, or the State Department came out and basically straight up contradicted him and said, you know, hey, that's not the case. This, these aren't appropriate comments to make. Um, we we do feel that uh, Russia meddled in our election and these are things that we're concerned about. So it seems like his administration and people have said it before is somewhat schizophrenic that basically people just let Trump say what he's going to say. And then all of his employees try to do their job with the least amount of distraction or disruption from him. But this situation seemed a little bit different because it was the first time that I saw mainstream uh, Republicans such as Rubio. um, And who else came out? McConnell, Speaker of the House, Ryan, they all came out strongly against him. And I feel like now, because he has particularly looked weak against a historic um, American adversary, that there are some Republicans who are now questioning their support for him. I think a big part of the reason why they liked him because they thought he, quote unquote, talked tough. And he positioned himself as a tough guy. And this last two or three days, it seems like that perception has changed. Yeah. And rightfully so, because, I mean, it's been apparent from the beginning. So, I mean, I'm not even sure where where we head from here, because he basically made an attempt to walk back everything he said and said, no, I meant the exact opposite of everything that came out of my mouth, which was a really weird way to apologize. Well, and he went back and forth. And I don't know if you saw this morning, he tweeted this morning, um, talking about, you know, there's no collusion, all the same talking points. Um, you know, I'm standing up to Russia, da, 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 da. And in the tweet, he said, quote, the news media, the real enemy of the people. I cannot remember in my lifetime or, and I was a history major, any time in American history where a sitting U.S. president called the news media the real enemy of the people. To me, mm-hmm. that's a Soviet era or or uh, something you'd see in a communist country during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So then when you see... Uh... When you see people like journalists really trying to hold him accountable for this, people always deflect and say, well, he's not calling for violence against journalism or journalists. But in a way, he is. In a way, he's putting out the dog whistle like we've seen him do a bunch of times. Well, I just what I fear is not even necessarily the violence against journalists, but is how can you really differenti- differentiate the United States and freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and all the other um, freedoms in the Bill of Rights against a country like Russia um, or any other dictatorship, like Kim Jong-un, for example, if you're attacking the press just as much as those guys are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's important to hold the press accountable, but it's also important to hold people accountable because uh, we're we're in a unique situation this, this day and age with the access to information we have, people don't know how to vet the news sources that they're using. So there is, there's always going to be that distrust of the media that's actually valid. And then when you have somebody like Trump endorsing it, saying that, no, the only reason we're still talking about Russia collusion is because they're trying to get me out of here. And people are going to buy into that because now they can put a news article on their Facebook page that reinforces all the things they want to believe. 
and they have no idea how to vet those sources. They have no idea how to fact check anything. So it's going to be really easy for them to deflect. I don't know if we're going to be able to hold people accountable if we're going to live in a society where we can't trust the media. Uh, I don't know if, I mean, and again, I'm not mainstream America. I think I do agree with you. There are large swaths of this country um, that don't trust the media. Uh, when I was in college, the first go around, when I was in undergrad, um, I dated a woman and her parents were um, part of the one of these multi-level marketing schemes. Um, I think that one was called... I can't remember. It was like American something. It, it was branded like in a very patriotic sense. And I know that they're based down in Florida. But off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of it. But I remember going to one of their rallies because it was a big thing for her family. It was important to them. And I wanted to, you know, be close to them because I, you know, <laughs> as a young foolish 20 year old was was feeling feelings for this woman. So um I went to the thing, I went to this event, and it was really interesting because not only was it all about, you know, how to sell this product and trying to be rah-rah for the product and, and make people believe it so that they'll sell more of it as any other multi-level marketing scheme does, but it was infused with a lot of, like, conservative politics, right? So there were speakers that went up there and they made fun of the Buddha and and how that couldn't be real compared to Christianity and just talked about had all these like weird ultra conservative talking points. I guess I say all that to say that like one of the other things that they kind of said in this, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, and this multi-level marketing organization was how much you shouldn't trust the news or that if the news said something bad, you should ignore it because you need to control what goes into your brain. Um, and I still remember that to, to this day because I think that there's quite a few organizations out there that exist that still are preaching that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no uh, doubt. And so I do think that that's another kind of demarcation between these multiple different Americas. But let's just say, too, for right now, that there is kind of this news-seeking um, analytical America, and there's kind of this shutting out extra information America, either because they feel like it's just negative and, and they don't want to think negatively or uh, because they just want their lives to be simple. But I'm not sure that that's something that is that much different from 50 years ago. And I'm not sure that it will be that much different 50 years from now. Yeah. Um, I'd say I would agree with the first part of that where it's not that different from 50 years ago. I think it will change or at least I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it. I think um, we're going to have to do a massive overhaul of media and what we consider to be acceptable journalism. There's going to have to be a, a re-educating as far as uh, what qualifies actual journalism versus uh, sensationalism and clickbait. So, I mean, and that's on both sides, but we know one side tends to be uh, less informed than the other statistically. Oh, I got, man. I got clickbaited so bad this morning, dude. Like, yeah. it said something about, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, it was saying they are get rid getting rid of Coke Zero, which I'm ashamed <laughs> to say that. Once in a while, I do drink a Coke Zero. And when I, it was on the student problems um, Facebook group, which has some hilarious memes and whatnot, by the way. 
Uh, but when I clicked on it, it was like, oh, yeah, in Australia. And I think they okay. knew both of their audiences in the United States, but they just wanted to see who they could get. And the, that same uh, group had another one this morning that was like, free, fr- free McDonald's fries for the rest of 2018. And I was like, not again. It's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think you want that. I don't think you want that. Yeah, you you know, we say that now, but like when it gets to be 2 a.m. in the morning and you're craving something a little salty, not too heavy, and it's got the like soft golden smush of McDonald's, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to pass. It's not worth it, man. It's not <laughs> worth it. I, I do those little flat pretzel chips with hummus. That's the, that's the move, actually. Okay. <laughs> so the next thing uh, on the agenda, you know, we're talking about um, Russia, and kind of wanted to talk a little bit about an old subject of the Cold War. Now, where I live, and somewhat I'm sure where you live in, in Denver, but here in LA, we have uh, one of the biggest kind of um, masses of undocumented people. Many of them are from Central America. And for example, what two weeks ago, there was an 80 something year old man who got beat up by a Caucasian woman, uh, American woman, and and some of her friends um, who were telling him to go back to Mexico. And apparently he'd been living in the United States for several years. Um, And I feel like there's, again, kind of this lack of desire for more information that's very readily available in that people don't realize that a lot of these countries that the immigrants are coming from are countries that we helped to destabilize. Um, I'm looking at a list of Cold War conflicts right now. So I just I, hate to interrupt you here, but I just had to. Okay. Um, speaking on uh, horrible reporting, let's see. They actually arrested the suspect in that uh, Los Angeles uh, beating incident. It was 30-year-old Lakeisha Jones of Los oh. Angeles. So it was not a white woman. Interesting. She's being held, she, yeah, she's being held on two hundred thousand dollar bail. This is coming from ABC News. And we, I mean, that is one thing we do plan to talk about on the show is that there is kind of uh, a liberal bent to mainstream mm-hmm. media. Speaking um, of clickbait, both of us got sucked into that one. Yeah, true story. True story. And we will be talking about that more in the podcast. Um, to go back to. Uh, these different Cold War conflicts. Um, Of course, you got Vietnam. And so we have a lot of Vietnam immigrants here, but they came over in a lot of times in the 70s and 80s. You've got um, Korean War. So you've got a big Korean population here. Again, they came earlier and they were earlier in the Cold War. Cuban Revolution down there in Florida. A lot of them came in the 50s and 60s. Laotian Civil War, so the big Hmong community in Minnesota, where I'm originally from. 1954, the Guatemalan coup d'etat, orchestrated by the United States. A lot of Guatemalans here. Um, The Guatemalan Civil War, which lasts from 1960 to 1996. Um, Let's continue down here. Dominican Civil War. We've got the El Salvador Civil War, Somali coup d'etat, Ethiopian Civil War, 
So a lot of the, uh, we got the Yugoslav War. So this is like the Bosnians. So almost every major immigrant group to the United States has been based from one of these conflicts. And it's really interesting that I do feel like the United States has been, at least parts of the United States, has been really good about bringing in, let's say, the Somalis or the Ethiopians or the Bosnians. But I feel like there's this weird perception because of this idea of the border that the Central Americans aren't given the same level of deference, which, again, coming from Minnesota, it's not like the Somalis are accepted by everybody, not by a long shot, or the Hmong. But I just feel like here they're automatically looked down upon. And I feel like it, it has to do with this weird fascination with the border. What are your thoughts? It's interesting. I mean, you're, so you're talking about how the Cold War has kind of shaped the current migrant situation. Right. And how a lot of people think that folks just came here because of intrinsic problems in their own society or in their own ethnic group, when a lot of the reason why people move here is because it's been disrupted due to our foreign policy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of uh, hard to understand how the Cold War even got so out of hand and all these civil wars, um, just basically capitalism versus and democracy versus uh, versus communism. So I think we have to remember that um, the reason things got so intense was because it was perceived to be this like mortal threat to humanity uh, in this arms race because it started with us using the atomic bomb, which is something that obviously put everybody on edge and then it begins this arms race with the Russians. So at this point, it actually becomes a mortal threat. And, it, and it's easy for us to kind of detach ourselves from that, from that fervor, because we're not really too afraid of nuclear weapons anymore. And we have anti-missile defense systems and things like that. But back in the day, people were really genuinely worried about this, that this is how the world was going to end and thought things were shaping up for there to be this cataclysmic, apocalyptic war of the world. And it just didn't come. And it just so happens that they destabilized most of the world while doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the immigration side, though, and people not, I mean, again, the Cold War lasted about 50 years, maybe 55 years. It was a huge part of American history. Why do you think that people have forgotten um, the impact it had. Do you think that it's something that's just not being taught? Uh, do you think that it's maybe even people at that time didn't realize um, how we were going into other countries? I mean, for example, again, the El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua thing, this is all kind of, these are all countries that are close to each other. And the Iran-Contra affair was a huge news article, um, a, you know, a big event. And it's, bizarre i feel like that people have just completely forgot that we were doing something very illegal it was a scandal um and they feel like is it that the people who are there just don't care and everybody after it is not told about it how do you think that it comes to the point where people just don't understand that there's a direct relationship between decisions we've made as a country in the past and why we have um refugees uh and whether that's foreign uh, policy and refugees from those countries or uh, domestic policy. And when you have refugees from 
certain states to other states? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a really good question because, honestly, I don't think I have ever looked at it from, from this perspective before. But I can see the connection here. So I think it's um, I think we have a short memory as a as a nation. I think we've kind of forgotten what's happened over the past fifty some odd years in the last century, and we've kind of distanced ourselves from it. We're not looking at the root causes of our problems. We're just looking at the problems. So, and even then, I feel like we say we're looking at the problem, but are we? So, for example. Me and you have talked a lot of times, and we'll talk about it again in the future. Uh, we have an upcoming episode talking about platform positions that the Democrats really shouldn't be taking that are hurting their cause and ones they should. And one of the ones that me and you have discussed before that I don't think they should be taking is the sanctuary city thing. I, I don't think it makes any sense. I don't see who the winners are, or who the winners are coming from that. Um, the cities are undermining the state and federal government. Um, it makes the, the Democrats look like they're embracing uh, illegality and kind of bucking uh, unity within the country. Uh, it doesn't really change what happens to immigrants outside of the cities. And, you know, growing up in, in the upper Midwest, illegal immigration was not something I ever really thought of. It wasn't something I ever really saw. We had a small group of uh Latin Americans. And I would say if, if anything, we probably had more illegal African immigrants than anything else, but it just wasn't something that was aggressively talked about or dealt with. Now living here in LA, you see the slum houses, you see people who are forced into living in, in these really bad situations because they don't want to speak up against these slum lords who either raise their rent or kick them out on the street. Um, and so they live in absolute squalor, um, while, you know, they're, they're financially sucked dry by the slumlords. You know, you see, um, people who really should be going to the hospital because they have severe medical issues, um, but they're afraid to do so, do so because then it will reveal that they're undocumented and then they run the risk of being deported. And so you have these vectors of disease. Um, I definitely think something needs to be done about it, especially when you see it firsthand. Uh, and it just bewilders me that people think the answer is uh, to build a wall on the right. But then on the left, the answer is to just say, OK, well, ICE won't be allowed in the certain cities or that we should abolish ICE when I don't feel like either one addresses the problem of the millions of undocumented people that live in the United States and particularly in the Southwest to begin with. Isn't this uh, more of a recent problem as far as the drug war? I think, uh, and you can tie the drug war back to communism for sure, but I feel like that's the immediate effect. That's what's causing this mass exodus from uh, Central American countries. No, actually, in fact, I can uh, read a little bit more for you about the El Salvador civil war. Just one moment here. So the El Salvador Civil War began in 1979 um, due to a coup. Um, the war, Civil War lasted 12 years and saw extreme violence from both sides. It included um, the targeting of civilians by death squads, 
the recruitment of child soldiers and other violations of human rights, mostly done by the El Salvadorian military. Um, the United States contributed to the conflict by providing large amounts of military aid to the government of El Salvador during the Carter and Reagan administrations. The Salvadoran government was considered friendly and allies by the U.S. in the context of the war. By May 1983, U.S. officers, officers took over positions in the top levels of the Salvadoran military and were making critical decisions in running the war. The United States estimated that leftist guerrillas were responsible for 5% of the murders of civilians during the Civil War. So they weren't completely, um, you know, free of illegal and, and, you know, kind of war atrocities. However, approximately 85% of all the killings of civilians were committed by the Salvadoran armed forces and death squads. And so these were the guys that were being commanded by Americans. Um, over the course of the war... There was 70 to 80,000 killed, 8,000 disappeared, and over a half a million displaced and who became refugees in other countries. To, to give you a picture of how much of that is like how that compares to their population, the population of El Salvador is the smallest and most densely populated country in Central America with a population of 6.34 million. So imagine every sixth American, um, or let's make it a little more accurate, every eighth American was either killed or displaced, was made to have to leave the country. Um, this was a, a, tremendic, a tremendously um, impactful event, a disruptive event to El Salvador. And to this day, Guatemala, El, El Salvador, and Nicaragua have some of the youngest ages in the um, Western Hemisphere. I think the average age in El Salvador is between 25 and 30. So you don't even have older people that kind of give guidance to the country. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's easier for a power vacuum to be filled. I mean that, is, but, but then yeah. also too, it's like there is literally nothing for people in El Salvador. If you are born in El Salvador, the life expectancy is extremely short too. I think that life expectancy is like 40 or 50 years old. You're pretty much like destined to a life of, of poverty, um, being involved with the MS-13. MS-13 was developed as one of those uh, kind of anti-government militias as those death squads were going through El Salvador. MS-13 were these guys in their neighborhood who banded together to protect each other from the government death squads. Um, so yeah, you're basically either destined to join them, which is going to be early, was going to be in prison time or early death, um, or you'll be terrorized by them. You know, there's not really any choices if you're born into Central America. And that's a big part of the reason why they come here to the States. And I don't feel like anybody talks about that. They just want to talk about the atrocities of MS-13, but nobody wants to talk about why that happened in the first place. Yeah. And that's a really good point. That's why I'm glad we had this topic, because this is something that uh, you actually gave me a new angle to look into here. So I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to learn from our mistakes here. So what do you think would be the a more, let's say, balanced solution? Because, I mean, we're seeing this over and over again in this country where we're kind of missing 
a middle ground here. We're either build a wall or we're like, no, let everybody come here and just dump resources into a community. Well, people talk about how um, immigrant groups should assimilate and become American and, um, you know, they should naturalize the legal way and so on and so forth. And people talk about how strong Reagan was against Russia and how strong uh, Reagan was on immigration and so on and so forth. And what a lot of people don't realize is in 1982, Reagan actually did declare a general an amnesty for illegal immigrants and allowed all illegal immigrants that had, had come to the country before 1982 to be naturalized. And a lot of these different groups did include other people affected by the Cold War, such as the Vietnamese um, and such as the Koreans and so on and so forth, all these other different groups. Um, and so I think it's really ironic that there's, we have this party that just has historically venerated Reagan, uh, but at the same time, they've never really looked up at taken a close look at his policies. And I think that in order to solve this problem to a certain extent, there's going to have to be a level of amnesty. There's no way of getting around it. And in fact, it's much cheaper to do that and to start getting tax dollars from people who can now legally enter the workforce than it is to build uh, a tremendous wall on the south border or to build up basically a, a large standing army on our southern border. And I do think that we have um, mechanisms in place there that can be strengthened in, in a smart way um, and make sure that we do have a secure border, don't get me wrong, but the wall is not going to solve this problem. And like I said, I also really think that the the Democrats, if they want to start winning elections, people who live down here and even other parts of the country that are now, now starting to see, for better or worse, and what I mean by this is they're starting to see large um, Hispanic migrations to traditionally non-Hispanic areas like the Southeast, like, you know, you spend a lot of time in North Carolina and there's starting to be a big Hispanic population there. And unfortunately, because of all this conservative rhetoric and these are politically conservative areas, they make the assumption that this Hispanic migration is all illegal immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's becoming an issue that's more nationally recognized, but people don't have enough information to make the right decision. And I think that Democrats just saying, well, let's abolish ICE or create sanctuary cities, neither of which are sustainable solutions to the problem. I think it it just hurts them. Like I said, I don't see where the winners are in those in those. So I just want you to uh, I, I get you. I understand your argument completely. Just what are some of the other things that ICE does? Why why would getting rid of ICE be a bad thing? So ICE is, is not just um, immigration, but it's also customs. And so like when you come back from certain countries um, for tourism and you want to bring back, let's say, plants or animals that might disrupt the ecosystem in the United States, become an invasive species, that's another role uh, for ICE is to make sure that you're bringing in the right thing. Another thing that uh, ICE kind of has jurisdiction over is international money laundering. So if people uh, commit crimes in another country and they want to smuggle money into the United States, uh, ICE is supposed to be there to regulate that flow of, of hard currency um, where, um, you know, outside, I don't, I, they may, I'm not sure if they have jurisdiction over electronic transactions, but I know that the hard currency is something that they look at. 
Um, so it doesn't make sense to, th there's no way that ICE would ever be abolished because every country has customs. Um, and so I think by people like one we'll talk about a little bit later in our show, Ocasio-Cortez, I think it's extremely irresponsible for her to chime in on the abolish ICE call. And I also think that something it's something that down the line uh, is going to hurt her. And I think it hurts people who are in our generation trying to get to Congress because she's become, she with this win is one of the new faces of our generation and backing such a stupid call reflects our generation to all the older generations. Poorly. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And I don't, I haven't heard really anybody make that argument, which is why it's, uh, it's been really pointy in hearing you speak about it now. Because in order to understand how to deal with a problem, we have to understand the root cause of it. And we're definitely gonna have to do a lot of revamping of policy in order to, to deal with the immigration crisis. So we gotta wrap up uh, today's episode, but we wanted to introduce um, a couple of new segments. And they're really, they're really tied together. So one of them is Evil Genius of the Week, where we'll each name who we think is the Evil Genius of the Week. Uh, and then we'll talk about the leader of the free world. And honestly, these are very loose definitions. So it doesn't necessarily have to be politics. It doesn't necessarily have to be business. I mean, it can be absolutely anybody. Chabe, who's your Evil Genius of the Week? Yep. Uh, I'm sorry that this one's going to be pretty obvious. It's going to be Putin. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Obviously, right? And I think he also might be the leader of the free world. <laughs> I think he's taken both categories. Um, Putin is, in many ways, um, he's the answer to, to the weak policies that let the USSR fall apart. It's the reason people love Putin. It's everything that Trump's doing, the way he's being manipulated and played and doing nothing about it. And just basically being sycophantic to the man, it's just going to harden his resolve. It's just going to continue to embolden him. So, I mean, while this is very bad, it's very bad for everyone, uh, it's great for Putin and for Russian nationalists. Uh, yeah, I was with you. I mean, this, this week he took the cake. I mean, this is a guy who completely runs his country. He has, you know, most of the wealth there. He's, a, you know, by many records the wealthiest man in the world um, made the American president look like a complete fool for the last three days. Trump has been running around putting out fires while the Russian um, embassy or consulate in the United States has been tweeting out, Oh, we can help in this way or that way. I mean, they in just every way right now are, are playing us. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think most political establishment people knew and this is the value of having people who actually have experience um and a little bit of background in these these matters is that they knew that this is a shrewd guy this guy was a kgb commander for decades and then was able to take um advantage of the upheaval um in the solution of the soviet union and become president not once but twice and now essentially president for life um, and you don't do that if you're a dumb person. Um, and unlike 
Trump, who's had multiple businesses that's failed, this guy has has, a, has had an enterprise that clearly has rarely ever failed. <laughs> so he he's up there. I'm hoping that we find a different evil genius next week. Um, but right now he's really out there, you know, evil geniusing it up. And he doesn't have to announce to everybody that he's a stable genius while he's doing it. No, it's readily apparent. <laughs> uh, he's like the Marvel supervillain that came back after yeah. the Cold War. Yeah, he really like, is. He I... forgot he had a son. <laughs> <laughs> and so who's your leader of the free world? Um, again, and this is, this is not uh, a leader of the free world that, I, that I'm proud of, but it's Putin again. Because while we're failing on all these fronts and we're losing footing all over the world, we're losing influence, you're going to see Putin step in. And this is a guy who, who almost undoubtedly knows that climate change is man-made and has no desire to try to stop that. He's going to do anything that benefits the Russian economy at this point. So, I mean, every time we have a loss, it's a win for, for Russia. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm willing to give Putin. Actually, I'm absolutely not sure that for me, he's a leader of the free world. I have, uh, you know, he silences the press, fixes elections, um, you know, is profiting, enriching himself through the Russian treasury. Uh, For me this week, um, I really was glad to see Marco Rubio step up and finally say something. And I mean, I think a lot of uh, the Republicans did, and I was really proud. Honestly, when uh, the sound bites started coming in, and and the tweets and the announcements and the statements, I almost, um, I almost shed a tear, man. I'm not gonna lie, because I was, I just thought there was no hope left for the American people and humanity. Man, I was just getting to that point that it was just like these guys do not care about their country. Um, and Marco Rubio was one of the first ones to step up with Mark Warner. They did a joint press conference and basically said, no, this is unacceptable. This is not what we do as Americans. And in fact, um, I went back and looked at some of the things he's been saying for the first half of this year. And he's actually come out um, to speak about freedom of the press. And some of these, um, I mean, I would say that they're traditionally liberal viewpoints, which now um you know, the Republican Party for the last decade has tried to say we're all about freedom of speech, uh, rights to bear arms, freedom of markets, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like we've seen really um, a lot of Republicans over the last three years waver on the First Amendment rights. So freedom of the press, um, freedom of speech. And um, he's come out and, and supported it. So I was not a big fan of Rubio ever. Um, but the, uh, the last few months, I feel like, and and it's interesting with him too, because he has a lot more to lose than a lot of other Republican lawmakers. This was a guy when he won, he did not come from immense wealth. He was middle-class Florida middle-class, which is not middle-class like it is, um, you know, in California and New York. Um, but I feel like he's actually starting to step up and, and develop some bravery um, that other people are following. So as as much as I don't agree with him on, you know, every stance, for sure, um, I'm actually coming to respect him as an individual in the way that I respect John McCain, who's been doing this for um, a long time. So, 
Yeah, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't give him too much credit. I feel like Marco Rubio is the type that dips his toe in the water to check the temperature before he says anything. I think McCain was kind of the real maverick in a sense where he really did what he thought was was morally the right thing to do. So I think Marco Rubio, we're going to see him become a little bit more progressive as he tries to uh, distance himself from Trumpism. But we'll see what happens. Absolutely. It was nice to see some prominent Republicans step up for once. Absolutely. So we went a little over time today, but, you know, that's our gift to you. And hopefully you enjoyed the show. This was the second episode of Mullins and Chow. And we look forward to seeing you guys again next week.